Good morning, everyone. You know, there's a, actually, it's not as bad as I thought. When I was standing there looking, I thought maybe there was something wrong with the front couple of pews. Maybe they were weak and falling over, and so I never would move back, but not too bad, not too bad. I like to sing when people are standing around me I, I, or really, really far away. What, you know, those are the two options for me because if I'm, uh, if I'm just going to sing in a, a very small group and I don't have a whole lot of support, then I, people aren't going to enjoy it very much. So it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. And um, I, uh, we're going to be preaching through the book of Exodus uh, have been for some time, and we'll finish it up in August. And we've, we're working through the Ten Commandments, and uh, we started last week, and we will finish up the Ten Commandments this week. And I'm not quite sure if that's, you know, how much attention do you give to the Ten Commandments? You know, six months? You could probably do that pretty easily and uh, and still be learning at the end of six months. And we're going to do it in two weeks. So trusting the Lord that that's, uh, you know, that that's going to work out. There are a couple of different ways to look at Scripture. While you guys are turning to Exodus chapter 20, there are a couple of different ways to, uh, I don't mean look at it as in understand it, but look at it as, as in study it. And I've said this before and will probably say it again because I tend to repeat myself, but um, it is very important to drill down into Scripture and to understand what it's saying deep down to dig into it, to tear apart the words, to look at it phrase by phrase. I love to do that. That's my natural bent is to do that. And I keep popping into this, and I'm sorry. I'm trying to fix it, and I'm not doing a very good job. And so um, uh, I like to drill down into it. I like to look at the meanings of words. I like to look at other places those words are used because then you start seeing the themes and how the author has put uh, things together and, and, uh, and stuff like that when you look at very close. But um, that's a little bit like memorizing your driveway, you know, that it's probably important. You know, at times you need to examine your driveway and you need to you need to know your block or your, you know, your property or whatever. But if someone asks you, where do you fit into Nevada? If you've only ever examined your own property, you have no idea. Right. And so it's also important to step back and look at the whole thing all together. And um, so that's kind of what we're doing by by you know, breezing through the book of Exodus in a mere seven or eight months. That's, that's kind of what we're doing is, is getting that, you know, 30,000 foot view so that you know how things relate to one another. We could park in Exodus 20 and spend a very long time there. And, and, um, and sometime maybe we will do that, but right now we're getting an overview and we're trying to get the direction of where things are going and understand it in its context. And so as you guys have already turned to Exodus chapter 20, I debated on how to start this morning's message, and uh, I was going to give a quote by Alistair Begg. He's, he's, a, he's a very reliable guy, and I was going to refer to him, and, and as I was praying this morning, I thought that's not the direction to go, because um, it was kind of a joke. I don't mean a, I mean he was making a joke, and I was going to repeat the joke. But our passage today is too serious for that, and so... I'm going to go exactly the opposite direction, and I'm going to read to you from uh, Romans chapter 1, and um, I'm just going to go through the second half of Romans chapter 1, and that will be our introduction to the second half of the Ten Commandments. So I'm reading from Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, that passage of Scripture right there speaks truly of our world, speaks truly of our culture, speaks truly of the heart of man apart from Christ. And it's not the most encouraging part of Scripture. But it tells truth. And it shines a light on the lives of those who would prefer to remain in darkness. In fact, it shines a light on the lives of those who live in darkness, whose heart is darkness. As we come to your word this morning and we look at Exodus 20 and we look at the, the Ten Commandments and we see the standard that you have set and then we compare it to these verses. Indeed, we compare it to the lives of uh, many we see around us and, and uh, the lives we see lived on on Facebook and online and in the news and around the world, we see that our nation, our uh, really our race, is running headlong away from you and ending up in Romans chapter 1. But we are your children, and we've been given your word, and we've been uh, given covenant with you, and we've been given your spirit within our hearts. We've been given salvation in Christ, and so your expectation for us is very different. And as we approach that expectation, as we, as we approach the law, as, as we approach the Ten Commandments, this, this kernel, this, uh, this statement of what life is to be like for those who are in relationship with you, I pray that we would examine ourselves, that we would see how we as a church and we as Christians relating particularly with one another and, and, and how our culture uh, is spoken to by these verses. We need you, uh, even this morning, to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to these things. I pray that you would speak to us by your word and by your spirit, that you would have your way in our midst. May we honor you and may we hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so that Romans 1 passage is not the most... Uh, Uplifting of passages. Fortunately, Romans gets better. <laughs> if you've continued to read it, you know it kind of keeps going downhill for a while, actually. But uh, but the um, there is a lot of encouragement in uh, in Romans. It's just not to be found in that part necessarily of Romans chapter one. And we will get to uh, we will get to encouragement, and we will get to what God, uh, God says about um, the end of that whole matter. But for this morning, we're going to read from Exodus chapter twenty, and we're going to. Uh, Start in verse 12, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, and this is our passage for the day. The passage also includes 18 through 21, but we're just going to read through 17 right now, continuing on with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 12. If you're using a pew Bible, by the way, it's page 61. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And so we see a, a transition in, in the second half. Maybe we call it the... Uh, um, this is, this is the, 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 the second... Uh, the second portion here of the Ten Commandments. We talked last week about the first four, which have to deal with our vertical relationship mainly with God. And these transition in the second tablet, they call it, um, transitions more to horizontal relationships. 
and talks about how we as covenant people, as God's children, how do we relate to one another? And so uh, we have these horizontal commandments that are given here. And, and I think it's fitting that it starts off with uh, the fifth one, uh, which talks about honoring your father and mother. And that's a, that's a fitting transition, I think, between commandments that talk about how we relate to God on, a, on, on this, this vertical plane and then transitioning to how we relate horizontally with one another, starting off with how we relate to our father and mother. And there are maybe a lot of reasons for that, but um, for why it's put in this position, but it kind of makes sense in that the way we relate to God as our authority grows out of the way we've related to our parents as our authority. Because uh, when our children are small, they don't know anything about the Lord. They've not been educated or anything like that, but they know when mom or dad says do this or don't do that, they begin to learn that they should do that. Mom and dad are the ultimate authority. If a police officer were to walk in or if the president of the United States uh, were to walk in and tell the child what to do, who are they going to look to and obey? They're going to look to mom or dad. They don't really care who that other guy is. He's got a funny outfit on anyway, right? So just concerned about mom and dad. And so we, we learn to relate to God by how we relate to our parents. And I look back at my own life and I see that, that, that that's the case. I see, I see that there's a lot of, um, a lot of crossover uh, in, in that, about the way I think about my parents, the way I relate to my parents, and the way I relate to God. And, uh, and so I think that's kind of what's going on here, is that he's, he's transitioning in that way. Which, you know, if, if you're a, a child... Uh, particularly, and even now as adults, you know, kind of makes you think about how you relate to your parents and, and kind of maybe gives you a peek into really how you relate to God, how you view God, how you submit to him or don't submit to him, how you obey him or don't obey him or, or how you treat him, how you relate to God. And, uh, and I think there's a, there's a lot of instruction in there about, um, that, that tells us, kind of gives us a peek. It's, a, it's almost like a litmus test for, for what you really think of God. And it's interesting that it's given uh, to these people. These are going to be, these are covenant people. They've already been brought out of Egypt, right? And they're going to be taken into the land of Israel in, you know, 40 years. They're, they're going to be taken into the land. They're going to inherit this land. And they're going to form a nation unlike any other nation that's ever been formed before. There's going to be a nation of believers, essentially, right? It's going to be, it's going to be the nation of Israel. It's not, it's not just that they moved in and lived next door to, to the Canaanite over here and the, and the Moabite over there and the Egyptian over there. That's not the way it was supposed to be. They were going to come in, move in and take the whole land. And they were going to be the nation of Israel, the land of Israel. And so the way they related to one another, uh, was going to be very important. The way they related particularly as covenant members of, of the community, the, ch- the children of God, how they related to one another. And so you can imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the way a child, a, a child in the home relates to mom and dad, well, that I, I can kind of see that that's important. You know, you, you can learn a lot about a family by going into their house at dinner time. You know, I, I had neighbors when I was growing up and I was a little scared when I went to their house at dinner time because there was like jelly on the floor and there was, you know, like it was chaos to me, just chaos. <clears throat> and so, you learn a lot about a family. If you came to, you know, my house at dinner time, you would learn about our family. You would see how the kids relate to one another, or how the kids relate to us, and and how we relate to them, and and you would learn about our family, right? And so that that kind of makes sense. But this commandment wasn't given to kids. This commandment was given to adults. It was about how we relate to our parents, if they're still alive. How do we relate to our parents? You see, it when you know I have an 18-year-old child and. She's not a child. She's, she's an adult. And she's 18 and she's all graduated and everything. And, and she's got a job and she's going away to school and whatnot. And so, you know, does it really matter how she relates to me? Well, I think so because I'm the dad, right? But does it really matter? Yeah, it matters. It matters just as much how she as an 18-year-old relates to me as it does, by the way, uh, how my, my you know, 11-year-old relates to me or how I, at 43, relate to my parents. Those things matter. The way we treat the authority in our lives, the way we treat those people who came before us and, humanly speaking, gave us life, says a lot about who we are. It says a lot about our character. And, and the reason I, what first tipped me off about that Romans 1 passage is as the passage goes on and it gets darker and darker and darker, and, and, and it, by that last paragraph, it's foolish, faithless, you know, heartless, ruthless, like it's throwing out all these, you know, really bad words that you're like, you know, who are you talking? And right in the middle of all of that stuff, 
disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. In the midst of all of that really heinous stuff, talks about disobedient to parents. And Paul was writing to adults. And he was talking about adults. He was talking about the way we relate to our parents. And so the way we honor our father or mother, the way we show respect to them, demonstrates who God is, demonstrates um, what the way God relates to us and the way we relate to God. We are to show them, our mother and our father, the respect that is due them because of their position, and that doesn't matter how old we are. We honor our mother and we honor our father. Because to do so, we are displaying God to the world by the way we treat our parents. Are we honoring them? They're they're a visible authority in our lives. They're a visible authority that has taken care of us through the worst times. They changed our diapers. They kept, you know, stayed up with us when we were sick. And they, they, you know, they know us through all the dumb things that we've done. And and they've, they've helped us accomplish any, you know, great things we've done and all that kind of stuff. And our parents are visible and they're right there. And they are authorities over us. And if we disregard them, how do you think we're going to relate to the God we can't see? We're going to disregard him. Or if, or if we just uh, say nice things to our parents while we're there with them and then go away and talk about, you know, they're just old. They don't even know what they're, you know, they're, they're doing it all wrong. And, they, you know, they raise us all wrong. And, they, you know, and, and we just badmouth our, our parents after we've gone away. What do you think we're doing about the Lord? We'll show up on Sunday and say nice things to God and, and, uh, and, and sing together and all that kind of stuff. And we go away and we think, you know, I, the Bible, you know, says some stuff that I don't, I'd really just rather not think about, you know, some demands that it makes on me, you know, some things it says I can't do that I really like to do. And, you know, there's, it, we might not even say those things, but practically that's the way we live. And so we are demonstrating to the world around us how we respect God and how we relate to him. And we do that in, as evidenced in how we relate to our parents. Even now as adults, that's the case. And so it's important enough. I mean, I, I would have said, you know, if I didn't know the Ten Commandments, I would have said, yeah, you know, how you treat your parents is pretty important, but I'm not sure it would have made my top ten list. And it makes the top ten list. It's the first of the horizontals. That's powerful. And so we display God to the world by the way we treat our parents. So honor your father and mother. Next is don't murder. Don't murder. Some of the Bibles say kill, and, and that's okay, but it's really, it's really more about murder. We, we know that in the Bible there were times when God certainly sanctioned the, uh, the killing of other people. They're about to go into the land of Canaan. That's going to involve killing people. And he actually tells them, make sure you do it and wipe them out. And so it's not about killing as in warfare. It's not about um, killing as in you know, capital punishment. Those things, uh, those things are different. This is killing as in something that we do usually out of some kind of premeditation, or some kind of vengeance that we're taking on someone that uh, it's not, it's not, uh, it, it, it might include some kind of an accidental nature to it, but it's, but it's usually more, you know, you cooked up this idea that you're going to take someone, so, you know, so-and-so out, or, or you got really, really mad and you, and you killed them. And, you know, it's that kind of vengeful kind of thing. And, and it, it makes sense because all life belongs to God, and it's not ours to take away. It's not yours and it's not mine to take away. And so we, we need to uh, relate to those around us, realizing their value as human beings and the life that God has given them. He gave to them, and it is not up to you to take it away. Like I said, in those circumstances, particularly wartime and whatnot, that's different. And, and uh, even, even self-defense, if you know, it comes up a situation like that, but you better... I don't want you to hesitate in the moment if you're, if you're about to get shot. But what I'm saying is you need to think so highly of the life of that person, even that person who might be attacking you or whatever. The life of that person is precious, and it is special, and it is a gift of God. And you need to think numerous times before you take that life away because all life belongs to God, and it's not ours to take. And so don't... Don't murder. And of course, Jesus, Jesus builds on this in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he points out that the, you know, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. And certainly that's true. He wasn't disagreeing with that. But he was saying, you know what? By the time you get to murder, you've kind of traveled down that road a ways. And he said it actually, you know, if you think about it, when you got onto that exit that leads to murder, that's when you headed down that path. 
you've already committed murder in your heart when you hate someone. You've already taken that exit. Why are you driving that way? Well, because if, if, if all things were equal and if the law wouldn't catch you and if you could get away with it and no one would know, that's where it would end up. You'd just rather they didn't exist. And so uh, Jesus talks about that and says even that, even that kind of hatred, even that kind of treatment of other people, that is, uh, that is the first step down that road toward murder. And in God's eyes, that makes us guilty of murder. And by the way, some people think, you know, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, and that he kind of softened the blow of the law and softened the blow of the Old Testament. Have you, have you read Matthew? <laughs> have you read the things Jesus said? You know, Jesus said, you don't murder. And we'd say amen to that, right? He said, oh, that, that doesn't just mean physical murder. It's much more stringent than that. It has to do with what goes on in your heart. You never even pulled the knife. You never even pulled the gun. You never even took the swing. And you've already done it in your heart. Jesus wasn't backing off on the law. He was saying, you, you want to understand it properly? Here's the truth of it. It has to do with your heart attitude. We are displaying God to the world by the way we value human life. Christians should value human life. Christians should be on the, on the front lines fighting against abortion. We should be on the front lines fighting against any kind of senseless taking of human life or any kind of selfish taking of human life. This is one of my, uh, this is not a political sermon. I've never preached one of those and don't think I ever will. But I've read a lot about socialism. And socialism, where you, where you end up down the road in socialism, is that what is important is, is the, the life of the community. And if you don't fit into that, you're gone. If you're holding us back because you're old or because you're slow or because you don't cooperate or because you keep writing these books against us or you keep saying stuff against us or whatever, you're really damaging the community, you're out of here. You're dead. That's, a, that's the trajectory that it goes again and again and again. We as Christians need to value human life because we display God to the world when we do that. He goes on and he says, don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. There are a lot of reasons why not to commit adultery. A lot of reasons. But he's giving this to the covenant community. He's telling it to his people, and he says, don't commit adultery. It tears apart the fabric of love and trust that is supposed to make up the covenant community. It tears that apart. It does, it does away with it entirely. How, how could you trust someone? How could you, how could you build a community of trust and love and faith in Christ if you're unfaithful to one another, how can you do that? You cannot do that. There is no trust. There is no love. And so you, you, you tear into that. Of course, Jesus was talking in Matthew chapter 5, and not only did he talk about the murder thing, he said, you've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. And he, and he didn't say, let me back off and make that easier for you. He said, actually, when you look with lust, you've done that already in your heart. You've turned down that road. What are you doing going down that road? It only ends in one place, and you're driving down that road. He says, it has to do with your heart. It tears apart the community. It tears apart the family. And we, we could say so much about this. We could go into to, um, Ephesians chapter 5, and we could talk about how God values marriage. We could talk about how marriage was actually designed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Is Christ faithful to the church? He is everywhere, and we are counting on that. Our salvation counts on that. If there's, if there's just, a, just a taint of unfaithfulness in Christ, what hope do we have, church? We have none. But he is faithful. And marriage relationship is created to be a picture, to be an illustration, to be something that we can look at to see and better understand the relationship between Christ and the church. I was reading, I was reading last night in, uh, in Malachi chapter 2, and it talks about unfaithfulness. And it talks about one of the results, uh, one of the reasons God desires faithfulness is because it says he desires godly offspring. He desires godly offspring. One, one of the things that is, that is warped, that is, that is confused, that is maybe made impossible by infidelity in marriage is what happens to the children. In, in the first instance, if, if 
if someone is committing adultery and a child is conceived, whose child is that going to be? Do we ever run into that problem in our culture? Custody issues. Yeah, we have. It's a great. It's a great difficulty. What what happens to that child? And then even if even if there is no child conceived in that situation, and and then have to figure out okay, whose parent, or who's who's the parent who you know where's the child going to live and all that kind of stuff. Very very difficult stuff to figure out. And it, and it starts with this root. But but even if there's not a child conceived, what does it do to the children of the parents, one of whom has been unfaithful? It's very difficult. To live with that. It's very difficult to, to address that in your own life and, and you're causing great difficulty for generations to come in your family by doing that. We need to honor the marriage bed and don't commit adultery. We are displaying God to the world through our marriages and through our families. Don't commit adultery. Next, he says, don't steal. Don't steal. Can you imagine a, a society that's based on theft, you know, with it or, you know, the, where uh, theft is normal and you just can expect. I've lived in places where, where stuff just disappears. And uh, when we when we lived in Russia, actually, one of the weird things about Russia uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union is that they, they all have these eight foot, 10 foot walls around their house. If they have a house, they all have metal doors that you can bolt, 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 bolt in your house. Why? Because. It's a culture that developed on 70 years of atheism. Stealing is only bad if you get caught and punished. And so theft abounds. And so you can expect your stuff's going to get stolen. They're going to hop the fence. Everybody has big, scary dogs, and all Russians are afraid of big dogs. And so they have these big, scary dogs to protect their property because theft abounds, because they live in a world where they have no... Uh, they grew up in a world where there was no fear of God. And so the covenant community is to be different than that. It's consist of trustworthy and redeemed people because we are displaying God to the world by our uprightness. By our uprightness. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. God's people are always to deal truthfully with one another. Bearing false witness is uh, the way it's put here. That includes lying, but it's, it, it kind of starts from this picture of a court case where you're, uh, you know, you're going to benefit somehow from lying about what your, what, you know, what, what your buddy did. Lying about what this other person did, and somehow it's going to ben- benefit you. And so you're going to bend your story a little bit. You're bearing false testimony, bearing false witness against your neighbor. And so think of the perversion of justice. I mean, we, we make people, you know, swear now, you know, and, and there's a whole, there are punishments and, and, you know, perjury and all that kind of stuff that, that, that you'll be, you know, guilty of and held accountable for because we understand, even in our culture, we understand that it is crucial that we be able to get to the bottom of an issue and understand what is the truth of what's going on. We have to understand that. And so that's the, that's the image of where it starts. It's a courtroom picture. You're, you're lying to the judge about what is the truth in a given situation. But, of course, that, has, that bleeds down into or it applies in all of our lives. We need to tell what's true. We need to speak what's true. And by the way, if you're, if you're discipling someone or if you're parenting your children <clears throat> or you're you know, de- dealing with someone going through a difficult issue, if they won't tell you the truth of what's going on, you're shooting in the dark. You have no idea what's really being said. You, don't, you know what's being said. You don't really know what's going on. You're being deceived by, by, by what's being said. I was talking with uh, a friend of mine, uh, Eric Robinson, who's an ER doctor, and he says when people come into the ER and, and they report to you because you ask them, okay, do you drink? Yeah, I drink. Well, how much do you drink? I drink a, you know, a six-pack a day. He said you always double it or triple it because you know they're lying to you. Right? Even, you know, it's just even subconsciously. You know, maybe it's not even heavy drinking or, you know, it could be, could be smoking or, you know, how many pain, pain pills did you take? I took two. Okay. They, they took four. You can just count on that and work with that because they lie and they lie predictably. <laughs> He's just used to that. He's just used to, used to dealing with that because we don't deal in a culture that tells the truth. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Tell the truth. The... the the grace that's available in Christ and the grace that's available in the church is enormous, enormous. Like if we all took a pact that next Sunday we're going to show up and uh, we're going, you know, and someone says, hey, how you doing? You would tell them the truth. Lousy, lousy. I can't even find my Bible. I haven't read it in so long. I don't even know. Or, you know, I just was yelling at my wife. 
you know, or, you know, I was angry at my kids or whatever. Like if we just told the truth, first of all, that would shock everybody, you know, because they're used to hearing, how are you doing? Fine. You know, that's what we like to hear. And, uh, and that's what we like to say. And, and by the way, I, I don't think we're always lying when we do that because you don't want to air all dirty laundry in all situations. But there is a time to air your dirty laundry and there is a situation to air your dirty laundry. And you should have relationships in your life where you can air your dirty laundry because in that you will receive correction and grace. You will receive grace. And so it, it, intimidates, it intimidates people when you ask them, no, how are you really doing? And they're like, yeah, I don't know, you know, can I really trust this person or whatever? We need to be those people who are trustworthy. And we need to know that when we say, I'm doing terribly because of this, I've been sinned against or I've sinned against someone or whatever, this is the place you find healing. This is the place you find healing. Huge misunderstanding about the church, right? Huge, huge misunderstanding about what Christians are. You know, the, the world kind of thinks that Christians are people who think they're better than other people. And if I went around and asked each one of you, I could interview you and ask you, you know that you're a Christian because exactly the opposite is true. You realize that you have no hope but the grace of God. That's the foundation for our church. That's the foundation for our relationship with Christ is we start rock bottom and we receive grace. That is so different than than the way your unbelieving friends probably think. They probably think, wow, so-and-so is just a really great person. He must think he's a really great person and, and that I'm not. And that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. He thinks he's better than me. We don't. There's grace and mercy here. There's grace and mercy here. There's grace and mercy in Christ. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. God's people are always to deal truthfully with one another because we are displaying God to the world by our integrity and by our mercy. And finally, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covet means really to, to, to want it very badly, to want it so badly that you just might act on it. Or if they weren't looking, you might act on it. Or, you know, you have something against your neighbor because he has something you'd really like. And it's kind of, you've, you've crossed into coveting. You know, when, you're, when your neighbor shows up with that fancy new whatever, and you would really love to have that same fancy new whatever, and you kind of get to the point where you're a little irked at your neighbor because he parks that fancy new whatever right next to your house and you're wishing you could just park it in your driveway and you've, you've slipped into coveting, right? You've slipped into coveting. And the same, you know, the same could be with anything that is, that is his. The covenant community is to be governed by respect for and contentment with the fact that God has given what your neighbor has to your neighbor and not to you. God has decreed that that is so. Rest in that and be content in that. We are displaying God to the world by our submission to his will for us and respect uh, for private property. We need to be content with what God has given us. We need to rejoice with other people when they have a fancy new whatever, when they have a wonderful whatever. Rejoice with them. Be excited for them. And know that God has different plans for you. God, who is all-knowing and is wise and loves you more than you love yourself has a different plan for you. Rest in that plan and don't covet. Because we are displaying God to the world by the way we look at that kind of stuff. And so those are commandments 5 through 10. We ripped through them and it didn't take all that much time at all. But there's more to the story. Okay, There's more to it. So look down at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. How did the people respond? We well, see, first of all, they're, they're, they started off this, this great encounter with God, which started back in, in chapter 19, has now gone through the Ten Commandments, and then we kind of have a summary of it here. The people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning. They, they've heard God speak, and, and they, they've experienced God. They've encountered God as He really is. They saw the thunder. They, they heard. They, 
they felt the ground tremble, right? They, the mountain was covered in smoke and maybe they could smell it. And, you know, like they, they were experiencing who God really is. That's how it started off. And the result, they trembled with fear. They trembled with fear. They didn't run to give God a hug. They, they shook in their boots because they encountered God as he really is. They trembled with fear. And not only that, but they began to despair of life. They began to despair of life. So they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. They understood the difference between them and God. And their God is shaking this mountain and making lightning and thunder and smoke and loud noises and a blast of a trumpet and saying these things and God was revealing himself to them and they were afraid that they were going to die from it. That was their response. There's no sitting under a tree with Jesus here. They experienced God as he really is and they trembled and they thought they were going to die. And so what do they do? What do they do when they think they're going to die? They say, uh, they say, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They received a mediator. They knew, you know, it's safer for us if we just stand off here at a distance where we're not so close to that smoking, shaking lightning mountain that talks and makes a trumpet noise. I'm going to stand over here where it's safe. Okay. Moses, why don't you go deal with him and bring back the message? They receive a mediator and Moses does that. And, 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 and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Imagine being Moses at that time, by the way, Moses has had a lot of interaction with God, but Moses wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't going into his room to pray. He approached, he drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And he mediated for the people. And, and that's how you see that play out. The next several chapters, you see Moses mediating for the people. So we see their, their reaction they, with this encounter with God. They trembled with fear. They despaired of life so much so that they stepped back, you know, and said, Moses, you know, uh, why don't you go talk to God because he's going to kill us if he keeps talking to us. That's their reaction. And so... Uh, I wanted to, this last, the last section that I want to talk about here, we're not going to go any further in our text. We're going to start right, stop right there because there's a lot to be learned for us in our own evangelism. For us in our own evangelism. I've, I've learned numerous different ways to share the gospel and I've shared the gospel a lot at different times in my life. And the Lord has been, the Lord has been faithful to give me opportunity and I love to evangelize, but I've done it very poorly sometime. And, and I'm, and I'm so glad that a lot of the, the poor evangelism that I've done, YouTube didn't exist and cell phones with the cameras didn't exist because I would have been, you know, evangelism fails that what you could find me on YouTube doing that. But, but I think we learned something here from what happens, the, the response of the people to what happens at the mountain. I think there's instruction here for our evangelism, for how we're going to share the gospel with other people. First of all, they need to encounter God. The person you're sharing with needs to encounter God as he really is. In our evangelism, we, we mustn't allow the mistaken view of God that persists, that sees God as meek and lowly. And really, he just exists to help you out. And, and he just so misses you and his heart's breaking and, and, and he just, you know, he just wants you to come and, and give him comfort and as if God is this weak thing, as if God is this needy person. And he, and he just, he just really needs to be fulfilled by you. Let's do away with that 100% and read scripture a little bit. Bible talks about God who is the almighty one. He created all things. He is awesome in power. He's a consuming fire. The Lord is a man of war. Let's just go back to Exodus 15. Remember the song they sang when they came through the, uh, the sea? The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the, in the sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? People need to hear that God. They need to hear Him. They need to know that He exists. They're not going to read Exodus 20. They're not going to read Exodus 19 about the smoke and the shaking mountain and the trumpet and all that kind of stuff. And so it's up to you, Christians sharing the gospel, to take them to that place where they see God for who He is. This is the God that we're dealing with. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He holds galaxies in the palm of his hand. He is almighty God. That's who we're dealing with. That's, that's the foundation. They need to encounter that God. And for them to do that, by the way, we have to have that understanding of God. I'm not saying God is mean and mad at them. I'm saying God is majestic and high and holy. We need to start with that as a foundation. And, and we need to encounter God, and the people we're sharing with need to encounter God in that way so that they will tremble with fear. We want them to tremble with fear before God. You remember the story in Luke chapter 5 of uh, Jesus is teaching, and he's, he gets out into a boat because there are so many crowds, and he backs off. And when he's done teaching, he's in Peter's boat. And, uh, and, and he tells Peter, let's go out a little bit deeper and throw your nets in. Peter kind of argues with him. This is very early on. He kind of argues with him a little. We've been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. But okay, Lord, we'll do what you say. And so he goes out and he throws the net in. And what does he catch? So many fish that the nets are starting to break. So that he whistles over his buddies. They bring another boat. They fill up the two boats. And the two boats are on the verge of sinking. That's what Jesus did. They've been fishing all night. Imagine those fish dodging the nets all night because the Lord told them to, you know. And then they all pooled in one spot and they all got gathered together in one spot because the Lord told them to. And Peter, what does Peter say at the end of that? He sees that it happens. And does he high-five Jesus and say, man, I'm rich. Jesus, thank you for what you provided. That's so great. And I learned a lesson from this. I could probably tell other people about this lesson. What does he do? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He encountered Jesus and he got a peek into who he really was. And it made him tremble, tremble with fear. The result of a true encounter with God is extreme humility because we see ourselves for what we really are. And I, I talk about evangelism here from Exodus chapter 20 because of the, uh, the way I tend to share the gospel with people is I tend to, first of all, ask them if they think they're a good person, because they always do, because we always think we're a good person, particularly better than that other guy, you know, better than you, obviously, you know. <laughs> That's kind of the way we think of ourselves. And so you ask the person, you know, you start talking about uh, spiritual things, and, and, uh, and you ask them, you know, if, if they think they're a good person. The answer is yeah, or I hope so. That's, that's the humble answer, I hope so, which really means yeah. And so you ask them, and then you start taking them through the Ten Commandments. First of all, ask them if they think they've kept the Ten Commandments, Usually they're saying, yeah, sure, you know, most of the time. And then ask them to name them. They can't, so they have no idea what they're supposed to be keeping. But you ask them, have you kept the Ten Commandments? Which is God's standard. It's God's revelation of what his character and nature is. How, how, do, you, how do you compare to God is what you're asking. How do you compare to God's expectations? And you start asking them. I always ask them first, have you ever told a lie? Because who hasn't told a lie? Only Jesus. Everybody else has told a lie. And so I ask them that, and, and, uh, and they'll say, well, yeah. And I say, well, how many have you told? And what I'm trying to establish with them is from their own mouth and from their own report that they understand now that they are a liar. What do you call someone who tells lies? Human. That's always the answer you'll get. Don't, don't, don't let that go. Don't let that go because Jesus was human. He didn't tell lies. Right? No, it means you're a liar. Right? Get them to, to, to admit that they're, they're a liar. Usually when you ask them, what do you call a person who tells, you know, the hundreds of lies that you've told or whatever? And they'll say, liar. Okay. And then, and then you ask them about the next one. Have you ever stolen anything? We, we read about that. Have you ever stolen anything? And they'll say, they'll eventually come down, you know, they'll deny it. Often I hear, no, never, not a thing, ever, ever. Oh, really? <laughs> you already told me you're a liar. <laughs> Am I supposed to believe you now? And so you establish in their own minds that, yeah, they, they, they've stolen stuff. They've taken things, maybe not a car, maybe not a, they've stolen things, right? And then, and then you get down to the one about adultery. Have you ever, you ever looked with lust? Yeah. 
Jesus says you're an adulterer at heart. And so what you're doing by comparing them, it's like a mirror. They're seeing themselves for what they truly are, and they see and understand about themselves that they are guilty before God. And so now they're trembling at this experience. They, they know who God really is, and now they know how they measure up. They don't measure up. The Bible says that the law serves to shut the mouth from making excuses before God. The same person that was just answering you back as if you were having a regular old conversation, confront them with the law, and they're listening to you because the law shuts the mouth of people, right? And so they are being uh, confronted. They're being con- convicted by the law, and his mouth will be, uh, will be stopped. His excuses stop. He stops maintaining his own innocency because he's already said, I'm a liar and I'm a thief and I'm an adulterer at heart. It's hard to maintain that you're a good person when you're those things. And we've only talked about three. We could go into the others. He's humbled before God, and he begins to despair of life. To despair of life. Now, is it our goal to make them despair? For, for a moment, if it brings them to reality, should, should a person who's, who's, who's facing imminent death, if they're standing in the street and cars are coming, should they despair for a moment? Yeah, because it'll wake them up that I'm not okay standing out here in the middle of the street. Cars are coming. So if they despair, they despair. You want them to at, at, at that moment, not because you desire their despair, but because you desire the fruit that comes out of it. You want them to understand how awful it is to be guilty before Almighty God. You want them to experience what they, what they sang about back in Exodus 15. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Because it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And they need to know that. And then they'll be in a position to receive the mediator. Only at that point. By the way, if, if I'm going through this and talking about the law, the person continues to answer, continues to respond, continues to object and maintain their innocence, I stop. They don't hear the gospel from me. They've not heard the bad news. The good news will make no sense. And so I stop. And they don't hear the gospel from me at that point. They need to understand. Uh, they need to get to a place where they've seen God for who he really is. They've experienced him. They're trembling. They despair for life. And then they'll be able to receive the mediator. And of course, there's one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who sent who came into the world himself so that he might be the redeemer, that he might bear the penalty for them. And that's when we talk about the gospel. Only then do we get to the gospel. When they've understood the bad news, now they can hear and appreciate the good news. Until then, they will not. They will not. Colossians 1.15. I'm not going to read that whole passage. 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's made the way possible for us to become children of God. We're not children of God by being human. We're children of God only by this. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we offer salvation to people. We offer the Redeemer to people. Because we want them to receive the mediator. So the application of these six commandments that we've gone through is abundantly clear. And so I'll kind of let you make that in your own life. It's pretty tough to get more explicit than the Ten Commandments are. But I don't want us to miss the progression that we see in the Israelite people, the response. First of all, they had a powerful encounter with God when he revealed his presence to them. Second of all, they saw his power and glory and were shaken to their core by the experience They weren't overjoyed and and rejoicing because they had an experience with God. Initially, they're shaken to their core. The people saw that they had no hope, thirdly, to remain in the presence of God like this and stay alive. They despaired of life. And finally, the result was that they understood their need for a mediator between them and God. Folks, we need to have that high a view of God, the kind of high view that's presented in Scripture, by the way, that His power and glory and holiness shake us to the core We must come to a place where we realize we have no hope in ourselves to remain in his presence and not be destroyed because of our sin. And when we realize that, and only when we realize that, 
will we come to understand our need for the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's my desire for us in this room, and that's my desire for us to take out into our world. We've been given that instruction by Jesus to go and make disciples, and you do that by sharing the gospel. Bring them here. Bring them right here to where they understand their need before God. And when they have understood the bad news and their knees are, are shaking a little bit and they're starting to ask you, what, what, what must I do to be saved? When they get to that point, you tell them. Because there is a redeemer. There is a mediator between us and God. There is one who has made it possible. But we only appreciate him. We, we, we only receive him when we understand the bad news that makes the good news glorious. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Because if I had imagined you, if I had, if I had conjured you in my mind, if I had been the one to write the Bible, I would have made you uh, less scary and less likely to correct me. You would have been more on my side. You would have looked a lot like the God of many, many, many people around us. But you don't lie to us in your word. You tell us the truth and you tell us who you really are. And it's good for us to hear that you are almighty God who shakes mountains, who scares people when they see you. Because then we understand that we need the God-man to redeem us. We need him as the mediator between us and you. And then we know to hope in Christ. Then we know to look to him. Then we know to trust him and believe in his name and become children of God. Only that way can we become children of God. Father, I pray that we would be struck with that vision of you, that we would even have that picture in our minds of that mountain shaking and these words being spoken that in, in, in the quiet moment of our heart, we know we don't obey. And we stand guilty before you in very small. Use your gospel to save people, I pray, even this morning and even when we take it out into this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So two, two announcements. First of all, 